Thank you so kindly. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Gary and my distinguished yoke fellows, especially the wives. And I'm going to share something with the wives right now. Wives, if you were not part of our ministry, we would have absolutely nothing. It's because of you ladies that make it possible. You can make or break a man. And so thank you for your endurance and patience and, and God-like criticism that comes against us from you. <laughs> Turn with me to Numbers chapter 12. We'll, we'll read and we pray and we expound chapter 12 of Numbers. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they were, went, they both went forward. Then the Lord said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we do pray, Father, for our own station in life. We pray for our own private world. Many of us here uh, this morning are mentally and emotionally fatigued from all the festivities and the celebration of the greatest day of us, the day of the resurrection. For many people, Lord, it's just a celebration for many of us, Father, just a constant preparation to make things happen. So, Father, may you allow us not to convalence and recuperate as we have fellowship with people that understand each other. And, Lord, we speak the same language. So, Father, may you be with us. May your spirit just hover over us. And may you minister to us. And may you, Father, will allow me to speak your truth. Make me a conduit of your truth as we stand here before you among friends. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, obviously, I'd like to share with you something that you and I don't like, and that is criticism. As obviously here you see Miriam and Aaron begin to talk trash against Moses. Someone told me one time, if you don't want to be criticized, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. But criticism will come. And what is criticism? Well, there, there, are, two, uh, there are two definitions. One is to consider the merits or demerits of and judge accordingly. Like we have film critics, we have uh, opera critics, and we also have ministry critics. And it is the act of criticizing usually unfavorable to find fault or blame, to denounce or condemn, it is a very strong disapproval. I know that most of you have Oswald Sanders' book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in one of his chapters, he says that the cost of leadership 
it's self-sacrifice, loneliness, fatigue. The, the fatigue is usually not physical, but mental, mostly weariness from labor or exertion, and it's also nervous exhaustion because there's a lot of stress. Uh, one, I, one day, if I may, uh, that was the only time, no, second time, forgive me, that I ever felt like cursing as a Christian. I have not cursed since 1975. Well, the year was 1993. I had been in the Lord, not in the Lord, a pastor. I've only been a pastor for 14 years. I've been involved in ministry for 28 years, but as a pastor, 14 years. So in my first or second year of ministry, we always remember our first infant death. All of us remember that. We remember our first wedding, our first funeral, but we always remember our first infant death. And I can't go into details, uh, but, but it's just suffice to know that I was there from 10.30 at night, and it went through all the madness until around maybe 5 o'clock. I'm trying to be a strong man. I'm trying to be the stalwart as people looking at me as the strong world, uh, pillar of faith, and I'm there. I'm just that by the grace of God. But I'm a man. I'm a father. I have five children. And, and, and so when, when the child passed away of leukemia, she was four years old. It was a very sad situation. Um, we, I stood with mom dressing her. Uh, they, they took the IV. You can imagine just the emotional trauma. And so I left. We did everything according. And by the time I got to the lobby, I just, I just lost it. I just, I just went flat. And I began to cry. I went to my car. I cried again. And I went home. I got home around 6.30 in the morning. I have not slept. I'm not hungry. I'm very weary emotionally. I'm spent. I'm taxed. So I, I, be, I get there. All my kids are sleeping. And I went and touched them. And I said, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And I got very godly, obviously, from that experience. So I told my wife, let me crash for around two hours. I do have a meeting at 11 o'clock. I don't want to miss it. So wake me up at 10. Well, I got to the church around 10.45. I made it. I'm still weary. And there are some workers there, church members. And they don't know what's going on. So when they saw me get out of my car, they started looking at their watch, and they're saying, hmm, nice, must be nice to be a pastor, banking hours. And for a split minute, I was going to tell them something about their mama, and I was going to say, <laughs> for a split minute, I was going to basically, I haven't forgot how to cuss. Maybe you have, I have not. Have you been so angry where you just... Maybe not. But I was so angry that I just said, yeah, banking hours. And that hurt me most, believe it or not. I went to my office, and I was dysfunctional for almost an hour because the criticism, it hurts. Criticism hurts. I don't care what kind of criticism it is. The cost of leadership is self-sacrifice, loneliness, fatigue, rejection, pressure, perplexity, and criticism. So I want to isolate only on criticism. You see it here. And I also was going through my devotions in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, in, in chapter 13, if you can go there, and we'll, we'll spot, spotlight some verses. Uh, chapter 13. Things are happening in chapter 13. It is the first missionary journey. I mean, Paul the Apostle, he he's just changed his name from Saul to Paul. We don't know how he changed it, but he changed it. 
And so there's a lot of sensational miracles. There's a lot of ministry going on. There are devils being exercised. People are getting ill. Him and Barnabas, they're team members, and things are happening, man. And they go to Antioch in chapter 13, verse 13. They, they go to, uh, they go to Perga and Pamphylia, and then we are told that in Perga, verse 14, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and there you find the whole uh, Old Testament and New Testament compressed in, in several verses. And then things are happening. People are believing in him. And verse 42 of chapter 13 says that when the Jews went out of the synagogue, after this long dispensation of ministry and preaching, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to, the, to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the entire city came together to hear the word of God. So far, so good. I mean, sensational miracles. The whole city is coming to hear these two knuckleheads. And they only have the gospel of Jesus. And people are coming. But now you see the opposition. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. In return, verse 46 says that Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you Jews first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And so, in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of God. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region and here's again, verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When you read chapter 14, you come to the place for verse 19 where the persecution it got a little bit, a little more crazier, more intense, to the point where they selected Paul, the spokesman, and they stoned him to death. And yet we find that he gets up, he gets up, and he says, I want to go back to the city. And he goes into the city. And then he ministers to other people, and he comes back to Lystra, and the Bible says in verse 22, as they returned from Lystra, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. My friends, I just want to share with you, there's a lot of pain in ministry. You know that. You don't want to be criticized, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. There's a cost in what we do. It's a great cost, a very great cost. Sometimes I'm bewildered how sometimes, and this is personal, I wonder sometimes why at our pastor's conference we don't bring those issues up. I share that with Pastor Chuck. Not that I want to, you have to be careful when you say things like that because I'm actually also criticizing I'm making an observation but I'm also criticizing criticism is good you know that 
we are told that he who doesn't receive criticism is a knucklehead. That's my version. <laughs> you rebuke a wise man, he be wiser. Rebuke a scornful man, he will hate you. So in a way, I was also criticizing. But my criticism was not negative, was not destructive, was not constructive. It was just instructive. I would like to see the reality of what really is in ministry. I really don't like when pastors come up and they speak of all the wonderful things. And that's true. But the Bible speaks of the hardships. Combine both, man, with ecstasy and glorious events. But at the same time, tragedy and crisis, inconvenience, malady, sickness. And that's from my heart because for four and a half years, we went through a very malicious episode. As my wife had brain cancer. I was alone. No one could understand until I met other pastors whose wife had cancer or pastors that had cancers themselves. So not only were we pastors, we have a, a certain dynamic about language and emotional tugging with each other, but we had another denominator that, that gave us the unification, and that was that we were both cancer survivors. And I, I didn't have cancer, but I identified myself with my wife. I, too, was a cancer patient. I was a caregiver for four and a half years. And during that time, there was nothing at the, at the pastor's conference that can comfort my heart. Nothing. Nothing. Basically, I wanted just to know, does anybody here just going what I'm going through? And sometimes if people do not, and you feel that you're not being accommodated with that, that, that element, there's a tendency for you and I just to retreat and say, they don't care. They don't understand. And Satan comes in and he starts whispering in your ear, you're right. These people are stupid. And you begin to talk to yourself. Yeah, they're stupid. Then you're, you don't realize that you're having a conversation with someone you shouldn't be. You've lost it. We lost focus. I believe this is why you need to bring it to the forefront. Criticism. Listen, Oswald Sanders again. This is what he said. There is nothing else that so kills the efficiency, the capability, and the initiative of a leader as destructive criticism. It tends to hamper and undercut the efficiency of man's thinking process. It chips away at his self-respect and undermines his confidence and his ability to cope with his responsibilities, unquote. You see, understand that in ministry, no matter how small, no matter how large, in ministry, Criticism will come from all sides, even your own family members. But you see, my family members, at least in my immediate family, I have Millie, and I also have three adult children. We have five altogether, but three are adults. They should move out, you know what I mean? <laughs> we already have one that moved out in the name of Jesus, but we still have two. But because they are adults... They thinking like adults. We raised them right. And because we raised them right, they understand things that are right and, 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 and their lives are basically reflected of the biblical rectitude they've learned. So you can't tell them to shut up when you train them well. You train them well to speak up when someone is wrong. So my wife, my three children, they have a platform where I make myself available and they can rebuke me. Not only rebuke me, but sometimes Millie will say, that was so stupid what you said. And nobody, not even my own mother, will talk to me that way. But Millie does. 
She goes, Pancho, that was so stupid. I know. I, I know. And I admit it. And she says, but let me tell you why it was so stupid. I already know. But let me tell you why. And so, I, I, you know, I was talking right now to Jerry Brown, and my phone rang. And it was one of my twin daughters, the one that's married. She goes, Dad, I'm just praying for you. I know that you're going to speak out there. She says, listen, Dad, you're nobody. <laughs> that's it. Just remember, you're nobody. Thank you, sweetheart. Love you. <laughs> but in ministry, you know if it's already happened, it's going to happen. You're going to have false accusation, slander, evil speaking, gossiping, criticism, blame. You're going to be misunderstood. They're going to defame you. You're going to malign you. People are going to spread rumors, fault finding. It goes on. No leader lives a day without criticism and humility will never be ever on trial that when criticism comes. And you know, you have to stand there. Paul the Apostle said the same thing. The Corinthians were talking trash about him. In Paul's defense against those that are examining him, see, there are two words. You have the word in Greek, apologia and anacrino. Apologia means defense, to give an account of oneself in a court of law. In anacrino is the examination means to scrutinize, to investigate, to interrogate, or questioning and cross-examination. When we are told that Pilate, he said in Luke 23, 14, you have brought this man, Jesus, to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him, see, that's different. But the word apologia is to give an account of oneself in a court of law. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. Yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. We are cautioned by the Lord Jesus Christ for us to watch our criticism. He says, judge not unless you be judged. So we are also to be careful how we criticize we, too, have to criticize in loving kindness. And when we criticize, our goals are to restore, to establish truth. We're not just to, to dominate and blast somebody off and marginalize them to kingdom come. That's not what we're supposed to do. This marginalization and, and you have power and you have authority and you tell people what to do and you belittle them. You castigate them to the point where you can emasculate men and you don't want to do that. I don't ever see Jesus emasculating men at all. In fact, Jesus builds them up. In spite of their holes, in spite of their fractures, in spite of their perforated hearts, Jesus' desire was always to restore. And that's the, what we have to. We can criticize. We are told by Paul tells Timothy, you know, rebuke, exhort with all authority. He says, don't let people die with your youth. He says, remember, you were called. Just have faith, have a good conscience, and fight the good warfare, and forget whoever's talking trash about you. And so Timothy was very timid. But we find that even Paul speaks about this ministry, doesn't he? Second Corinthians chapter 4, he says, As we have received ministry, we have also received, what? Mercy. Realizing that the only thing we have going is that we have mercy behind us. We're no different from anybody else. Now, I don't know what kind of Bible you have when you study. By the grace of God, I speak Spanish and read Spanish. So not only do I read several versions, I also read precious moments. And I also read Spanish. 
I read like around five, six versions before I, I put something in paper because I want to get all angles from everything. And the Precious Moment Bible says this, We are pressed on every side by trouble, but we're not crushed and broken. We are perplexed because we don't know why things happen as they do, but we don't give up and quit. We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going. See, I like that version better. It's not so uh, uh, poetical like the King James. It tells you like it is. We go through perplexities. We go through anxieties. Do you know what, what is the main reason why most of us, pastors over 40 years old, you know why we go to the emergency rooms? Visceral symptoms. Chest pains. High blood pressure. Those are the things that take us to the hospital. And we need to watch ourselves because our, our, our scars are invisible. One guy touched my hands one day and he goes, wow, you have soft hands. You don't do any work. <laughs> That's an offense to my children and my wife. Because, sure, it's not physical work. It's not. Right here and right here. It's not muscle mass. It's, it's brain mess. Not muscle mass, brain mess. <laughs> People in our staff, they're, they're co-laborers. Co they're assistant pastors, associate pastors. You know, the buck stops at the senior pastor's office. See, they get to go home. Sure, they're on call, and, but they eventually they'll call me. Oh, they, you, know, you have to go. Okay, why don't you go? No, they want you. Okay, because I'm the pastor. Sure. But for them, they check out at 4.30, most of them. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. And to their, in their defense, they're, they're doing exceptionally well. And to their defense. But for long, many years, I mean, they check out 4, 4 o'clock, 4.35 o'clock. They're gone. I don't. The church goes with me. Sometimes I'm sitting there in my bed, and, and there's a theater there's floodlights of a theater going on. Who's on base? Who's on third? Tomorrow, yesterday, what happened? Analyzing, execution. All these things happening, man. And there's a lot of concern. Hyperventilation. There's so much concern. And then when someone criticizes you, it's like you want to give up, man. You know... I keep things that really minister to me. I don't know if you know Terry Matt, Mattingly. Mattingly. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. But he has a religious column in the Washington Bureau of the Scripps Howard News Service. He, he has the religious column. Well, I got this back in 1999. Listen to what he said. It's a little lengthy, but I hope it ministers to you. I hope my son or my daughters will ever write something like this. Anyone who grew up in a parsonage knows that PK stands for preacher's kid. Early on, I rebelled against that label. But I wasn't rejecting my father, my family, or the faith. When people called me a preacher's kid, I told them that my father wasn't a preacher. He was a pastor. There's a difference. My father passed away last week at the age of 82. And I thought this would be a good time to say once and again what I said to him and to others many times. I have always been proud of his work. Of course, it had been some time since the Reverend Bert Mattingly retired from the pastorate and from his post-retirement work as a hospital chaplain. That didn't matter. 
In Texas Baptist lingo, he was always Brother Bert. My father preached, but that wasn't what defined him. The joy and burden of the job is that there, there's more to it than that. The job seems to be getting tougher. You ask Jim Dolman, he's a veteran editor focused in the family who has specialized in issues linked to the ministry. During one research project, he read many letters from clergy and their families, some of which left them weeping. Some pastors weren't burning out, they were crashing in flames. I read one letter after another from pastors or their wives talking about this overwhelming sense of loneliness and isolation, he said. Over and over, they write things like, we're totally alone. We can't talk to anyone about what's going on in our lives or the pressures we're under. We're out here twisting in the wind, unquote. The big pressure is for pastors to be ready and available to handle each and every crisis, no matter how minor. With family and friends far away these days, who do people call? Oprah? The all-night therapist? Dahlman said people who expect pastors to be lifestyle role models with perfect homes and perfect spiritual lives, but it's a problem if the pastor spends too much time at family events or on prayer retreats. Church members expect well-researched, practical, and preferably entertaining sermons, but it's a problem if the pastor spends too much time studying and writing. The clock is always ticking. I'm convinced the main reason stress levels are so high is that so many people in pews and pulpits have forgotten that pastors are defined by who they are and what they stand for, not what skills they possess and what tasks they perform. Pastors can be shepherds if people expect them to be superheroes. Why was I proud of to be a pastor's kid? This may sound simplistic, but I believe churches need to hear it again and again. First, my father was a pastor, not a preacher. Not a CEO, not an entertainer, not a clinical counselor, self-help guru, or crisis management consultant. He preached the Bible, not his feelings and experiences. Today, many urge pastors to make their lives open books, often forcing a fake extroversion that has little to do with reality. This has more to do with life in an era of mass media confessions than solid teaching or evangelism. My parents were united for 58 years by their love and commitment to ministry. Today, many churches place so much pressure on clergy schedules and spirits that they weaken the very foundation of their personal lives. This has led to clergy divorce rates that are shameful as in society as a whole. My father wasn't a workaholic. It wasn't until college that I talked with other PKs and discovered how unusual it was that I spent many, many hours with my father. I'm convinced this was linked to a more balanced, realistic approach to ministry. He kept on loving God, his work, and his people. I have never known a pastor who didn't wrestle with fits of melancholy. Good pastors are real, realists who face the reality of pain and sin. And then many heap criticism on them, micromanage their lives, and expect miracles. Truth is, I rarely saw my father move mountains, but I did see him preach. I didn't see him teach. I did see him pray and embrace sinners. I was proud of that, that he was my pastor. And he was my father. I still am. Very wonderful. Very wonderful. I hope that my son and my children will ever write something like that. That I hope that the reality of Jesus in good times and bad times, in the midst of criticism. I have to protect my kids from criticism that other people make because my kids will hold a grudge. I have to say, no, don't say anything. Don't be talking trash about my dad. You don't even know him. And they want to go up to the people. And they wanted to say, let's sit down. Do you, know my, do you know my father? Do you know my mother? 
Do you know what they're going through? Do you know that they, they, Do you understand? And there's no way. Because you see, I, I rely on what the Bible says. It says, you know, I always say, God, time, and truth. God, time, and truth will always reveal the truth in God's timing. There are people who are always, you know, we thought, you know, when I was going to Bible school, I put my vision, 300 people. That was my vision. 300 people, a pastor, assistant pastor, slash assistant pastor, uh, slash associate pastor, uh, administrative, uh, and janitor. You know, him doing everything. And one secretary. That's it. And 300 people. That was my vision. Well, God's vision is far more grandeur than mine. And so with a large church, you're going to have a complexity of, of, of different elements of friction and criticism. And, and, and as much as you try to, to, to take care of business, you cannot. It's, it's just so much. But like I share with you, we live in, in a world, our vocation, our calling is that we're going to be criticized. If you don't want to be criticized, like I said, do nothing, be nothing, say nothing. And many people are like that. I don't want to move because they're going to criticize me. Even Jesus told us to be careful. He said this in Luke 6:27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. You see, see we're under a different ballgame rules. The people can criticize you. They can talk trash. But you know the word. And you don't have that authority. In fact, you have a mandate from God to do something else. When they start talking trash about you, you're supposed to pray for them immediately. How many do that? I often I don't do that. That's like a, after the fact. When I start saying, nah, you know what? Shut up. Who are they? don't know what they're talking about. And then I'm reminded either by my wife or my kids. Is that what you're supposed to do? Oh, Father, no. Father, bless them with the truth. <laughs> Open their eyes. They're blind. And I ask you, Lord, if I'm... See, but that's after the fact. How I wish that I can just respond like a godly man, that I don't need my wife or my children to correct me. How I wish that I can just say, bless them, Lord. Bless them. Bless them. I was driving with a very godly pastor that I know, and there was an idiot, idiot, who just almost ran us over. And I'm riding shotgun. But I'm from California, you see. He's from Boston. And, and homeboy just got in there. I said, what a stupid idiot. And he said, Father, bless him. Maybe there's an emergency. Maybe there's something. I, I just, just want to roll down the window. Just put my head out. <laughs> Why can't I think like that? And that's called lack of maturity. And so I'm getting there, man. I'm getting there. Even Paul said in Romans 12:14, Are you persecuted? Bless those who persecute you. Blessed do not curse. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12, he says, Are you being reviled? Bless." You're being persecuted? Endure. You're being slandered? Entreat. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2.18. Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, he says, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and you suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow his steps. So, what I want to share with you is like, 
If someone criticizes you, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, they're criticizing him. Who are you? You're not even an apostle. Who are you? You, you? You're just a chump that got saved. You were killing the church, and now you can. You now you're a man sent by God to the Gentiles, and that's exactly what happened. He always addressed an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he added a prisoner or a servant of Jesus Christ. But I am an apostle, and but they were they were basically using destructive heresy, and they were going against him. And so what I share with you and I share with people, consider, ponder, and contemplate the type of criticism. When people criticize you, you have to analyze it. Is it constructive? Is it instructive? Or if it's destructive? If it's destructive, Father, go before them. If it's instructive, I have a, a convictional persuasion that, that I need to be attentive if it's constructive, much better. But I have to know the source. You see, I have people that are able to stand around me and criticize me. I have four senior pastors from Calvary Chapels. They're in my board. They tell me the way it is. I tell them, talk to me. Tell me. What do you think? Well, Pancho, I think that's a stupid move. Okay. Can you be more serious than that? Well... Um, you know, basically that's a dumb move. Why do you say that? Because it's dumb. Don't you see it? Uh, maybe I don't see it. See, and we have a dialogue until the other pastor says, Yeah, Punch, don't you see it? And now you got two. And they're seeing something I don't see. And you see, that's where counseling comes in. When you have two, more than two heads, and you have people that tenure, experience, they love you, and they want to tell you the truth. You know that old scripture. The, the, the wounds of a friend are better than the kiss of the enemy. Someone has to tell you the truth. Who in your own private world have you given the right to tell you like it is? Do you want people just basically going to you, yeah, I agree, I agree, yes, boss, yes, boss, okay, boss, okay, I agree. I, and they think, that's stupid. Who do you have that can tell you up to your face? You have to have someone. You know what King David said in Psalm 141.5? He said, let the righteous strike me. It shall be kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. This is the king of Israel. He said, he says, if I need to be corrected, he says, first of all, there has to be a, a righteous person. But that righteous person has to be kind. And let him rebuke me. Because that rebuke is going to be like excellent oil upon me. And let not my head refuse it. Because there's some good people that want to tell you, you're going the wrong way, Punch. I have businessmen. I had engineers from our church. We don't have that many people like that, but we have a few. And, and, and we're going to do something. And they come in and, oh, Jesse, homeboy, just got out of prison. He did around maybe six years in Tahiti, you know, Tahiti, L.A. County. So he's six years. He's a construction worker. He knows his stuff. He's tattooed down, bald-headed, big old mustache. And he's eating his lunch. And we have an engineer, a structural engineer. He says, well, we have to put a beam in. Well, all that talk. And that beam is very expensive because there is no support. And the guy pipes out. There's a support there. I said, that's Jesse. And the engineer was offended. He said, uh, what did he say? 
What did you say, Jesse? Oh, there's support. There has to be a support, man. These two walls cannot support all this roof. There has to be something. It's just hidden, man, somewhere there. And the engineer was just a little bit taken back. And so he, so he says, I hate people that have done that. He left. So I told Jesse, Jesse, mellow out, man. This guy knows what he's talking about. So am I, man. There's something there. I said, he says there isn't, man. He's professional. And here's a guy who's telling me there is. I told him something disdainful. Man, you know, just eat your lunch, man. He left his lunch. He crawled up. He went in. He crawled up. And I can hear metal banging. Boom, boom, boom. It's right here. <laughs> we had to call back our engineer. I says, there is a support beam. There's absolutely no support beam. There's a support beam. But the ball-headed guy told you there was? No, he found it, sir. We saw it. So he came back, and he had to eat crow. He couldn't say, you're right, I'm sorry. You see, what a difference. He couldn't say, you know, I should have realized, should have brought my measurements, and I realized that the roof is too heavy. To, for, no, you see, he, he, he just didn't want to crawl in there. But here's a guy who knows what he's doing. He says, I may be a, a convict, but I'm not stupid. Criticism from this person came in. It was constructive. It was instructive and constructive. It wasn't destructive. And so I listened to this guy, and he was right. And so even David says, you know, keep an open mind. You're not above reproof, correction, exhortation, or rebuke. Someone said, an open, humble mind is willing to receive from any quarter. Honest and helpful critique is good. Biting, destructive criticism is bad. Proverbs 13, 18, Solomon said, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. Proverbs 15, 32, He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Think of Priscilla and Aquila. There was a guy by the name of Apollo. Apollo, the Bible says, he was just a brain. This guy was an intellect. This guy was a sage in the scriptures, but he, was, he had the wrong message. He was teaching the baptism of John. And, and Aquila and Priscilla, they already got the hookup with Jesus. So they had to talk to this guy. And what was the profession of Priscilla and Aquila? What were they? Ten makers. Apollo was an Alexandrian Jew. That tells you everything. It's like saying, he's from Harvard. He's from Yale. And you, people that work at a swap meet, you're going to come and tell them what's going on? <laughs> and so Priscilla and Aquila, the Bible said they get him to the side. They says, Apollos, can I share something with you? Apollos could have said, who are you? You, got, you work at a swap meet. You smell like goats. And, and who are you? He received it. What about, what about when in Galatians, Paul says that I went up to Peter, to his face, and rebuked him openly. Peter could have said, who do you think you are? Have you ever walked on water? <laughs> Have you ever seen the transfiguration? Have you ever raised anybody from the dead? I did, Dorcas. He could have said anything but he didn't. What about Abigail and David? When Abigail had her husband, what's the husband's name? I forget. What is it? Nabal. Yeah. And he's a knucklehead. David just said, can I have some food? And he was drunk. I ain't going to give you jack. So David got upset. Right? David got upset. He took 400 men to, to kill a drunkard. It's like getting a shotgun for, for a cucaracha, man. And so they go... And they tell Abigail, you know what? He's coming. He's going to knock it all off, man. So she gets on her horse. 
and meets him. Here coming, he's fuming, he's angry. 400 men, 400 men, valiant men, crazy men, to get one drunkard out. She stops him. Oh, King David, don't ruin your reputation. You're a king. And what would the people say? You're a king. You're going to destroy this idiot? Don't, man. And you know the end of the story. David said, okay, stop. And he got the hookup with Abigail afterwards. There's a price to just heat sometimes. So he stopped. There's another one. It's how about Jethro in, in uh, Moses? Even with a name like Jethro, would you like advice from someone named Jethro? First of all, he's a Midianite priest, right? He's not a Jew. He hasn't seen the, the burning bush. But yet, Jethro says, what you do is not good. Moses could have said, who are you? You're not even my people. You're only my father-in-law. And that's it. You're a priest. You worship deities that are not even of God. Get out of here. But Moses was a humble man. And he says, what is it? What you do is not good. And you know the story in, in uh, Exodus chapter 18. He says, get leaders of a hundred, a thousand, tens, fifties, and, and you know, let them deal with it. And they'll bring you the hard cases. And Moses said, that's right. And so you see the humility is, is very wonderful. And so, let me just share with you as, as I close. First of all, you get criticism, seek the favor of the Lord. Not your emotions, not the people, or their opinions. Peter, James, and John, they were criticized by the highest court of their time. It's a hindrance. They, they, they told them, look, man, you're fishermen, you're Galileans, you don't even know how to speak right, you have an accent, and you cannot, you, shut up. And, but they say, whether well, it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. We ought to obey God rather than men. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? And Paul said, for if I still please men, I will not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And then there's a psalm that I like when I get criticized, whether it's constructive or instructive. Because they can have good intentions, but they don't know all the details. You understand? A lot of people don't know all the details. They shouldn't. They're not in that inner circle. Because they only want to criticize. They want to call the shots without commitment. They're not, part of the, they're not part of the church. They're not part of the leadership. They're not part of the sweat and blood. They're not part of the sweat acid of the church. You know what a sweat acid is, right? People that put their elbows and their, and their heart to the ministry. And those people have a platform to criticize because they give not only their money, but they give of themselves, their ideas, their time, and they're here. You should listen to them. But you know you have people that only come once a month. And they have their own businesses. You go, you know, if I, if I was you, I would do this. You know, it's not that we don't want to do it, dude. It's that we don't have permission yet. We don't have the jump change yet. And we, we're, that's why we're not doing it. If you want to do it, bring the jump change. And let's do it. Oh, well, well, the Lord leads. Oh, then shut up then. The Lord leads. Get out of here. And that's just the way it is. So there's a Psalm, Psalm 26 where, he's, where he starts, Lord you vindicate me. You exonerate me. You examine my heart. You let me know, Father, as you give me the, the, the vindication. He says, for I have walked in my integrity. Uh, if I'm wrong, Lord, and then show me. You see, that's the best way. And you learn from that. And then you've got to find out who dispensed the criticism because it makes a big difference who. Consider the source. Who said it? Oh, you know, Joe, the mechanic. Joe, the mechanic? 
Who said it? Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute. That's not a mechanic. That's Pastor Chuck. Or any of you. You know, it's someone that's, you know, the gardener from the church. You know, from the church that you went to right now in Hemet. Yeah, the gardener. Man, he said that you shouldn't be driving a car like that. The gardener said that? It's all right. But he said, yeah, Pastor Gary said that. Oh, and i got to come back. Pastor Gary, what's up with that? Why? Because I consider him valuable. And I consider the source. But if someone who's always talking, I ignore it. When people send those, those like, hey, brother, my concern, I, I, I look at the end. If there's no name or just a beloved brother who cares, I said, well, brother, I don't care. <laughs> I don't want to read it. You know why? Because it's going to hurt you. Criticism hurts. It chips away at your confidence. Now, if they have a name and phone number, fine. I have our secretaries call that number first, make sure it's them, and then tell them, Pastor Ponch is going to read your letter now. So I read the letter, and I call them back, and, and I correct them. No, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Or basically, we're going to work at this. We're going to do something about it. And then I said, you don't mind if I mention your name? Oh, no, don't mention my name. No, it's constructive. It's constructive. And so we open it up. I said, I appreciate these letters because they're constructive. And, you know, and then when I do the move, people say, oh, Pastor Ponch, that was a good move. The tendency is for you to say, I know it. But you have to confess, it wasn't my idea. It was Sister Blavermouth who really said something wonderful today. <laughs> so who dispensed, the, who dispensed it? Because, you know, it's important. Even Jesus rebukes his disciples. Samuel rebuked King Saul for his disobedience when it's needful. And so, is the criticism dispensed in the spirit of gentleness? That's another factor. And so, as pastors, I would ask you to make yourself vulnerable to someone you trust. To someone you can bring your petitions without, without judgment. You can bring your woes without any incrimination. That you can bring situations like we did. We had a meeting with one of our pastors. He was coming down, and uh, it was important for me to meet with him. I had to share some things that were going on in our ministry, decisions in my head, my children, milling and everything. And so he's in our board. And we met at a hotel in, uh, in Pasadena. We had breakfast, and we just had a wonderful talk. He had to buy some furniture there in Pasadena. And so we met halfway. We had dinner, I mean lunch. Breakfast. Breakfast, we had like a, like a five-hour breakfast. Talked about everything and anything, both ways. And it was encouraging. It was wonderful. You know why? Because we're speaking to someone who knows our heart. When I was in the service, and I was overseas for 11, 13 months, you know, I was with Americans, but when I met someone from East L.A., oh, it was different. Hey, home, what's happening, man? How's everything? Lincoln Heights, Lincoln Heights, yeah, four Heights, man. And it was just like, dude, even though we're both Americans, we're in the same service, but we're from the same neighborhood. We're able to talk about what's going on in the same way. You need to gather around people that can tell you something. Don't let your friends pray for a, a particular time so that God can open doors to speak to you about something. Make yourself available. They say, hey, man, you know, you know me. What do you think? What do you think? Go for it. I had a pastor friend of mine. He's still a friend, even though he doesn't speak to me much, but I'll tell you why. I couldn't find his church. I was speaking at his church. I couldn't find his church. 
And so I called him up. He says, you know, I can't find your church. He says, oh, bro. He says, yeah, well, it's one of those streets that are very high. And then that's a steep, right? It, has, it goes down. And the church is right here. So when you're driving, you see nothing. So you have to get up to the driveway. And then you go down. Well, you couldn't see the church. And, and then I got there. And it, it was very dark, um, uninviting. And so that night he said, you know, bro. If I can learn from you, you know, if you can tell me some things, you know, let me know. I said, whenever you're ready, whenever you're ready, you know, because, man, I mean, I will learn from people. My wife and I steal ideas. In a moment, we're going to go around and you're still Gary's ideas. What do we have? I mean, why not? I mean, why not? There's nothing wrong with that. If it works here, it works for us. It, it, I, we steal everything from every church. Every you go to our church, you go, oh, this is cool. I stole that from Calvary Chapel. And I tell you all the chapels that we stole it from. <laughs> we emulate perfection. That's it. Why reinvent the wheel? We like it. When we build our church, only the facade is going to be ours. The rest of the building is from another Calvary Chapel. They pay like $40,000 for the architecture. And they're giving us for free. Does it make sense? Makes sense to me. Only the, only the outside is our own. But the inside is going to be exactly like one church that we know. And they pay 40000 You hang around with Chuck, man, and that's what you get, man. You get all those things, man. And that's it. And, and, and so we're going to have that. We steal that idea. Well, my friend, um, he says, what do you think about this? I said, bro, may I share something with you? Your church parking lot's uninviting. It's dark. There are no ushers outside. There's no sandwich board or anything to show people that that's the church is right there. It's, just, it's not well lit. I mean, I would hate to be a woman. I would hate to have my, my, my two small girls, you know, park out there. It's, it's not inviting. And ever since then, our friendship has been a little bit, a little bit frazzled. And I know it's because of that. He was not able to take that exhortation. Friends. Friends. And yet, to this date, to this date, that has not been done. So I wonder, where do you take your lessons from? You know, it's not like, like, like I know everything, but my goodness, we've been around the block. I learn from others, and the least they can do is learn from other people. I don't know what prohibits him from not adapting to what we're saying. Is it pride? Is it negligence? Is it lack of money? Or basically does not want to give me the satisfaction that he's going to do it? I don't know. And you know what? And I don't care anymore. Because if a friend cannot tell him, who is? And so, I hope and pray that you take criticism for the way it is. Analyze it. Instructive, destructive, constructive. Secondly, who said it? Makes a lot of difference. And then take it to the Lord. Because if not, criticism will destroy you. And I share this with you. We were in 1992. We started our ministry in 1993. We're in L.A., you know. The Orange County music cannot fly in L.A. I'm sorry. So we had a group called Idol King, Dynamic Twins. They're all rap groups, great Christians. And I got a call. Brother, that's not Calvary Chapel. What do you mean that's not Calvary Chapel? No, we, 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 don't, we don't do rap. This is 92. We don't do rap, dude. I said, so what do you want me to do? Bring the Bill Gaither trio here? <laughs> what, what, what am I going to do here? 
I said, we don't have money. We don't have expenses. I mean, we, don't, we, we have expenses. We don't have money to do that. The Dynamic Twins were given a couple of burritos and around 10 bucks each. And Idol King, we're giving them so-and-so, and, and they're going to come. And we just got flack. Well, the following year, you know, the following year, other Calvary chapels begin to get them. So it's like, okay, so, so see, if I would have listened to that criticism, I would have just been a little gun-shy. No, if it's not Calvary Chapel, it's okay. You know, you, 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 you can't go. You can't take Orange County and take it to Uganda, Africa. You can't. You, you got to have, you, if you have rhythm, forget it. In Africa, you don't have it, forget it. You better get your worship minister immediately from Africa, immediately. Otherwise, that, that little sing-song, chewing-gum melodies are not going to get it over there. they got too much rhythm. And so immediately. And so criticism can bite you or you can tame criticism. Because if not, criticism will take you to a circular grave. Don't let it mess with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace and goodness. Father, I pray for each man that's here representing their fellowship. Father, only you know the depth of their situations. Only you know the magnitude of their anxiety. Only you know, Father, the extreme pain they may have in their hearts and minds. And Father, I ask you that you, in spite of how we may be feeling, in spite of how we're managing with our emotions or the criticism, you are more powerful than all the things above that I just said. Father, may your comfort and peace saturate our hearts. That you, Father, would just come upon each and every one of us to feel your comfort, your joy, and your peace. To know that in spite of tragedies, in spite of inconvenience and hardships, we will see your hand among our labor. Father, for we must enter the glory of God through much tribulation. So, Father, help us that we can recognize the power of the resurrection, but also the fellowship of your suffering. May you teach us well. We thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.